views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC or the Invisible Choir podcast. This case deals with extremely graphic depictions of domestic abuse and violence. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, get help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. While Judy Malinowski struggled to stay alive, Michael Slager would eventually see his day in court in December of 2016 for what he had done to his former girlfriend. Slager claimed that the entire incident was simply an accident and that he had mistakenly set Judy ablaze while lighting a cigarette. But that explanation didn't go over so well in court. Witnesses testified stating that they had seen Michael Slager walk distinctly toward the back of his truck retrieve the small gas canister, and then proceed to pour its contents all over his defenseless girlfriend, who by then was laying on the ground. Cameras at the gas station and the bank, and a Marine witnessed it um, uh, as well. So um, the cameras and the Marine and Bert Stand and other witnesses said that he had hit her four or five times in an altercation, and then held her down with his foot and um, then as she's disoriented he walked to the car or hit the back of his truck and got a big large container of uh, gasoline and just kept dousing her in it. With the overwhelming evidence against Michael Slager stacked up at this point, he would later change his plea to no contest. But before the judge would make her ruling, she had this to say to him. You've done all the things that just really show what a despicable individual you are. You really do seem like one of those people that have no soul and you need to be incarcerated. And with that, 42-year-old Michael Slager was sentenced to 11 years in prison for aggravated felonious arson a slap on the wrist when considering the torture he had inflicted upon Judy Malinowski and the future hardships he'd taken upon himself to create for her, if she was even able to survive. There were still so many unknowns, skin graft after skin graft, waking up every morning in excruciating pain. Doctors prompted Judy's family to begin preparing to say their goodbyes to her. But in those first few days and weeks following the attack, Judy refused to give up. And months after the incident, she finally regained full consciousness. She began nodding her head yes or no in response to questions, which eventually progressed into her being able to speak again, but only above a whisper. Judy, tell me, tell me, is today a good day? Tell me why today's a good day. It's light outside. So the sun comes up and you don't hurt as bad. That's a good day. How do you describe what you've been through? Horrible. 
no human should ever have to go through that. Nothing that breathes. The silence is deafening here, and although it's hard to make out what Judy is saying in response to the questions her doctor is asking her, while watching this video, you can read her lips when Judy says, nothing that breathes should ever have to endure the pain of being set on fire. Judy is shown lying in her hospital bed, horrifically disfigured. All of her hair is gone as it has been burnt to the scalp, and a tube is pictured, inserted into the side of her neck, meant to assist her breathing. This footage is extremely difficult to watch, but perhaps the most poignant aspect of the entire video is Judy's chilling response when the doctor asks why she chose to talk on camera with him that day in relation to domestic abuse. Why do you want to talk to us today? Get out. run because I want to tell people how horrible something like this can be and if you're in an abusive relationship find help and get out completely run the other way that was Judy's response to the doctor when answering his question in the video fresh blood stains are seen on Judy's pillow propping up her head from an open wound after one of her several recent surgeries it is gut-wrenching to watch this woman struggle while advising other women that may someday watch this tape and find themselves in a similar situation to seek help before it's too late. She lied there on the bed, thinking not of herself and her life-threatening injuries, but of the lives of future potential domestic abuse victims. The word selfless certainly comes to mind here, but in some way, that feels like an understatement. Courageous could not even begin to describe the character that remained within this woman behind her scars. Judy's body was virtually destroyed, but her mind and spirit were still strong. Judy's mother, Bonnie, would admit that there had been times when she wasn't sure if she was doing the right thing by keeping her daughter alive, as Judy was in a constant state of pain every waking moment of her life thereafter. She wanted me to just let her go, and I said, no, I'm not letting you go. We fought too long and too hard, and so that's when we said, I had to take a step back with myself and say, she's really in a lot of pain. She's She needs retraction surgery. She can't move her body. Am I being selfish? In the same video, the physician then asked Judy what she wants in regards to her future. What conclusion have you come to about your future and, and what you want? You're going to fight. Judy continues by mouthing the words, I'm going to be there to see both of my girls graduate and I'm going to walk both of them down the aisle. She says all of this just above a whisper. You know, she was in an insurmountable amount of pain. Um, the, here, the burn experts tell me that because she had no skin, for instance, on her back, um, the only way that you or I could perhaps even begin to understand the pain that she felt, and this would be a mild case, albeit similar, is if you have a raw nerve exposed and someone blows air into it, 
and it's real painful at the dentist, you know, like it's exposed and someone blows air. That's somewhat what she felt in her entire body because all her nerves and muscles were exposed. Um, you could see the spinal cord and um, just the muscle and the tissue laying there. Um, but with all that pain, she was determined. <clears throat> she, you know, she knew when she came to, she certainly knew her faith. And the first thing that she seen when she woke up was an angels. And she kept mimicking ate the word angel on the um, vent. And so um, that part was interesting, and, and there's not enough time to really tell you that whole um, story. So, so there's a divine side of that that gave her strength and perseverance. But then the other side of it was she was so determined not to let this happen to any other any other person. Right. Um, so she fought so hard because she didn't want this to happen um, to another woman. And she knew the system had failed her. Two thousand seventeen, roughly two years after Judy Malinowski had been deliberately doused in gasoline by her ex-boyfriend and set on fire. Miraculously, she was still alive. Doctors had anticipated she would have passed away long before this point, as she had undergone some 60 surgeries and had been hospitalized for nearly 700 days. In that time, she had coded or redlined seven times, meaning she experienced seven cardiopulmonary arrests. Judy Malinowski essentially died during these episodes, but was brought back to life each time. She had endured more suffering than any human being could ever imagine. She must have sensed her time was running short. Her daughters came to visit her bedside frequently and with their grandmother, Bonnie, all of them donning full hospital gowns, gloves, and slippers due to Judy's incredibly high risk of procuring an infection. She still had many open wounds from constantly going under the knife. As the burns in Judy's throat slowly scarred and healed, she eventually would be able to speak again above the mere mouthing of words she had suffered to exclaim during her first several months while in the hospital. She knew now was the time to tell the entire truth while she still had the opportunity. The complete details of this case had not yet been revealed by Judy herself, as she was unable to communicate this information properly. That is, until now. Judy Malinowski wanted documentation to ensure justice in this case if she were in fact to pass away. Her mother would arrange a bedside deposition where Judy would speak, a video testimony that could eventually be turned in and provided to the courts at a later date, if needed. Because if Judy were indeed to die as a result of her injuries, Michael Slager would be looking at a whole new set of charges, one of which included murder, even years after the initial offense. On January 26, 2017, it was time for Judy Malinowski, for the first time, to clearly and audibly describe the events of that day back in 2015, the day that left her with horrible lesions reaching all the way down to the bone, mutilating nearly her entire body. 
But before Judy could give her side of the story, she was ordered by the courts to be taken off pain medication to ensure a coherent victim account was given. When considering the extent of her injuries, it almost seems like a cruel and unnecessary added precaution to the existing physical and emotional trauma she was already suffering from. They wanted to make sure that her testimony would not be tainted by any factor, including the side effects of pain medication. And as outrageous as this may sound, prosecutors met for a Skype video conference that would be held remotely. Judy was present via laptop from her hospital room, accompanied only by a nurse, while the prosecutor and Michael Slager's defense team were on the call from different locations. The video is extremely painful to watch, but not nearly as painful as it must have been for Judy to relive those horrific moments. Now unmedicated, physically struggling to utter the words, as a pillow saturated of her own blood rests beneath her scarred head. The entire deposition was nearly three hours long and was preemptively recorded after doctors informed Bonnie that Judy wasn't expected to live much longer. I think that I went away thinking that because I knew how sick Judy was that day and I knew that no one could be in the room with Judy during this testimony except the judge, Michael, the two, uh, one was an appellate court attorney because it was capital punishment, his other uh, judicial attorney, and then, of course, the um, prosecutor, Ron O'Brien and Warren Edwards. Those were the only ones that were allowed to be there. in the nurse, I'm sorry, and the nurse was allowed to be with Judy. Um, so that that was, I was more concerned about her facing him alone. Um, that had to be extremely tough. And then facing him to or her own homicide and them telling her this would be sealed until she circumvented to her injuries. How will she process that again as a mom? So I was kind of in a different mode, was more in mom mode of protecting my child than what this, what they were saying to her. If, if that um, makes sense. Um, I think she did a fantastic job considering the public doesn't have, nor could they understand how um, injured, how much pain, how tattered, I mean, what kind of shape her body was in. Um, If you were able to experience that, then you would get the true impact of what she really did. So testifying, you know, was one thing, facing him was one thing, but unless you really, really understood what, where her body was and how close she was to death and the pain and the agony that she had, he should have broken arm. They didn't even know about it. Um, that came back in the autopsy report, then you couldn't really understand the, what would you say? You really couldn't understand. Um, you could not understand the magnitude of what she had done, the magnitude of her own personal sacrifice. On January 26, 2017, after doctors informed Judy and her mother, Bonnie, that she was not likely to survive much longer, She was sworn in to give her remote testimony from her hospital bed at the Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center, 
Hi, Judy. Hi. Okay, I'm going to start by asking you your name. Full name. Judith Ann Malinowski. And it's Malinowski spelled M-A-L-I-N-O-W-S-K-I? That's correct. Is it okay if I call you Judy? Yes. And uh, Judy, is your birth date August 26, 1983? Yes. So you're 33 today? Yes. Okay. Though both of Judy's ears were completely burnt off from the fire, somehow she still had her hearing. In her video testimony, Judy is seen laying very still with a breathing tube inserted into her neck, the same tube that had been assisting her to gain oxygen since the day she had first arrived in the hospital nearly 700 days before. After formalities are stated for the record, the prosecution then begins to question Judy about the horrific events of August 2nd, 2015. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, Sunday, August 2nd, 2015. Do you recall that day? August 2nd, 2015, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, and on that day, were you with Mr. Slager? Yes. So when you were with, with Mr. Slager, you indicated that the two of you stopped at Speedway. What, what did you stop there for? To get cigarettes. Did both of you go in to get cigarettes? Or did no. only who went in? He did. We were arguing back and forth. Neither one of us were very happy with each other. Okay. And what did you do when he went in to Speedway to buy cigarettes? Well, he was extremely upset with me, so I tried to sneak out of the truck and around behind the Speedway building. Okay. And this is the Speedway at 376 Agler Road, right? Yes. So you, while he went inside, you got out of the truck and went behind that speedway. There's a bank there, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, what happened as you uh, stood behind that speedway? Well, Mike came in a matter of no time at all around in his truck. Uh, he saw me and immediately slammed the truck to the park got out, demanded that I got into the truck with him, called me all sorts of names. Uh, we argued for a good five to ten minutes, and then I threw my pop on him. You threw a pop he, on him? Yes. Uh, did you splash it on him or actually throw the cup at him? I threw the cup at him. Okay, and this cup, was it uh, a hard plastic or paper, or what was it made out of? I believe it was a styrofoam cup. Okay. Um, uh, did the drink get on him? Yes. What was his reaction to this? He was extremely upset. And what did he do? He ran around to the other side of his truck and he got his uh, of gasoline that he had kept in the back of his truck. It was a really big and a lot of gas. He ran around with me and started pouring gasoline, started up my head and worked his way down. Some got through my throat as he did that. That burnt really bad. The gasoline in your throat burnt really bad? Yes. And uh, what, what happened as a result of having this gasoline poured on you? He then set me on fire, 
Well, let's slow down a little bit. Before that, uh, were, did you remain standing, or were you standing when he poured the gasoline on you? No. When he poured the gasoline on you, were you standing? No. Go ahead and tell us what, how you were when, when he poured the gasoline on you. I fell down and I was leaning on my front side, holding myself with my right arm and hand. Okay. So did you fall down as a result of that burning sensation from the gasoline? No. Okay. What caused you to fall down? I fell, well, I fell down completely the rest of the way. But I originally had fell down because I mean, he had pushed me I tripped when I was running from him. Okay, you tripped? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, when you trip and you're falling and, and you're laying there holding yourself up on one hand uh, and he's pouring gasoline on you, what's his demeanor as he's pouring the gasoline on you? Evil, just completely evil. He's not, he's not responding to any of my cries for help. He won't tell me why. He just, like, you want to throw something on some, or you want to throw a cop on me, see what I'll do to you, bitch. And how do you like this? And just all sorts of longer names. Okay. So Judy, was was this a joking demeanor? You poured something on me, I'm gonna no. pour something on you, ha ha, isn't this funny? No, it was an evil demeanor. Okay. Uh, and um, after he poured the gasoline on you, um, what happens next? He backed away from me for about 30 seconds and I kept telling him, so please help me and stop and I'll get, I'll get the truck, I'll go with you. You know, um, why, how, why would you do this? And I looked at him and he pulled a lighter out of his pocket and he started walking towards me. And I just remember crying and begging for help. And he let me on fire and the look in his eyes were his eyes went back, literally, after I was set on fire, and he backed away. His eyes just turned black as I screamed for his help. It's equally gruesome as it is shocking to hear these facts explained from Judy Malinowski herself. And it is extremely rare that a victim survives such an act of torture and violence and then lives to tell the story. Uh, Judy, uh, let's talk about the moment that you were set on fire. Did you have a cigarette? No. Did you ask for a light? No. Did you make up with Michael in any way? No. Uh, and when he approached you with the lighter, what did he look like? Like Satan's child. Did he appear to be angry or like he compassionate, like he was making up with you? He appeared to be full of rage. It's a bit difficult to hear, but when Judy is asked about the look on Michael Slager's face before he set her on fire, she says, quote, His face was full of rage, yet calm at the same time. Judy, tell me how that moment felt 
when you were ignited? Oh, horrible. I don't think words can describe what it feels like to have your whole body on fire. I can remember screaming for help. I can remember looking over and seeing him just standing there staring at me with the look in his face that was just like I keep saying over and over again, pure evil. Like, there's no other words to describe it. My whole body felt like the worst burn you could ever feel in your life. Okay. It was like a thousand needles going in, a thousand hot needles penetrating my body. I, I guess that's the best way I can explain it. And I just remember, like I said, begging him to help pleading for any help, trying to get the fire off my face, eventually burying my face in the grass and walking around. And then um, I got to the point where I couldn't see anything and everybody's voices were sounding far away. I could tell there was definitely somebody around, but I couldn't hear them or make it out. I thought for sure I was dying. I just prayed to Jesus to please forgive me for my sins and to take care of my children. And that was it. I blacked out and I don't remember anything until I woke up in the hospital. Uh, can you tell me about the pain that you live with? Objection. I live with pain every day. I, uh, I can't tell you or describe how it feels. It's just. Waking up is a horrible thing. Cause you wake up feeling the same way every day. They say it gets a little better as time goes by, but it's one thing heals, another thing hurts. So I, uh, I have to push myself to make it through every day. I have to really tell myself why I'm doing this and. I have to, I have to just breathe through it, and uh, that's all I, that's all I can do. It's nothing I would ever wish upon anybody, and uh, it's terrifying to feel this way, and it's terrifying also to be disformed in certain ways. My whole body hurts. My muscles hurt, so I'm stretching. My open wounds hurt and sting and burn when I put the dressings on and try to clean them. It's the worst pain ever. Even water hurts. So there's nothing that's okay about this. Judy expresses that there is nothing okay about this situation, as if she owes anyone an explanation or needs to prove her suffering as she addresses the court via webcam, raising her left hand with its extremities completely missing. However, the sad truth is that she did have to do this, and she knew it. 
Judy needed her truth to be heard, and her strength was on full display as Michael Slager's defense team was given their own lawful opportunity to question Judy during cross-examination. To warn you in advance, their line of questioning is nothing short of repulsive. Your continued drug use over the period of that summer, did that affect you physically? Yes. You get addicted and then you try to stop, you get what's called dope sick. Is that fair? That's correct. Messes with your whole system. You start vomiting and diarrhea, dehydration. That's correct. Also messes with or affects your ability to think clearly. Is that fair to say? Something. Right, but your thought process has changed somewhat. You start doing things you otherwise wouldn't do to avoid that being dope sick. Okay. Michael never did heroin, to your knowledge, did he? No. At some point, your mother refused to renew the lease in your apartment. Isn't that true? Yes. Now, as a result of the fact that you were still doing drugs despite the fact that she didn't want you to do drugs. She knew about your drug use, is that true? Yes. What happened to all your furniture and property in, the, in your apartment? To what? All the, the stuff in your apartment. Well, first off, everything in my apartment belonged to me, and it was all put in the storage unit. Who put it in the storage unit? Michael. Michael, Michael put it Go ahead. I apologize. I'm, I'm, I just want to be clear. Michael's the one that put this stuff in the storage unit, correct? Objection. That's correct. I can hear him to say that. And that was at the request of you and your mom. Objection. Uh, you put my mom. Okay. Your mom asked Mr. Slager to assist you and, in moving your things out. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but I wouldn't tell you and Michael at that time. I was trying to avoid him at all costs. Okay. Well, let me ask you about that. On August 1st, this would be the night before August 2nd, okay, um, you and Mr. Slager got into an argument about your drug use, the amount of money he was spending on you so you didn't get dope sick, things along that line, correct? Yeah. What the defense is presumably trying to do here is poke holes in Judy's character, painting her as a mere drug addict insinuating that she is in some way a bad person and that Michael Slager's unconscionable actions may somehow have occurred as a result of Judy's drug use. This violent man's legal representation does this, all while portraying Michael Slager as the upstanding boyfriend, who even took the liberty of helping Judy move her belongings into a storage unit. To many, their efforts seemed clearly feeble yet still insulting, a simple mechanism to somehow humanize Michael Slager while casting reasonable doubt behind the intentionality of his actions that day. Regardless, listen as the attorney continues to belittle Judy Malinowski, repeatedly speaking over her while she lay on her deathbed, attempting to convince a future jury that she was in some way responsible for what had happened to her. So at this time, when everything happens, you're high on, on what? 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 What kind of dope did you do? You also had perks that day, did you not? Percocets. I don't think so. What about crack cocaine that day? I didn't have any crack cocaine. I had a fight with no crack cocaine. All right. Okay. I don't mean to embarrass you. 
while highlighting Judy's previous history of drug use and the fact that she was indeed high that day. Michael Slager's defense attorney continues with his attempt to discredit Judy's recollection of events from August 2nd in an effort to cast reasonable doubt on Michael Slager's guilt and to open the door for the rarest of possibilities that his actions, however horrifically unconscionable, were in some way actually accidental. Can you, can you tell us what you were wearing that morning of August the 2nd? I don't remember. Okay. Do you remember getting dressed that morning? No, I don't. Don't remember what where you went to do drugs, but you knew it was a bathroom of some kind, correct? I've been through so much there, unfortunately. I don't remember a lot of things, but it was good. Uh, be fair to say that the trauma you've suffered has affected your memory? Yes. Say that it has affected your ability to recall events accurately? I'm very glad. Would you agree that because of the trauma that you have suffered, your ability to recall events accurately has been compromised? My ability to what? Recall events. Remember things. I, I can recall the events, but the, the many details of them is what's hard for me to recall. You have to understand, on August 2nd, I was set on fire, yeah. thrown on the ground, and burst. 95% of my body. I understand. What, what I'm trying to get to really is... To try to keep track of everything that happened okay. in this horrible relationship. I appreciate that. I'm gonna, uh, ma'am, I'm going to ask some specific questions about that then, okay? You can hear the pain in Judy's voice as she begins to cry, while the defense team continues to ask seemingly irrelevant questions, such as, what were you wearing the day someone poured gas on you and lit you on fire? It's extremely frustrating to watch Judy have to relive her worst waking nightmare, while simultaneously having to defend who she is as a person while laying in a hospital bed near death. We won't subject you to any more of this line of questioning, though shortly after this clip, Judy would have heard enough herself. She was relieved when the questioning finally came to an end. She felt good knowing that she had accomplished something, regardless of how difficult it was conjuring up those awful memories. I asked Judy's mother, Bonnie, if she felt the defense team's questions were in any way out of line or insensitive, given Judy's grave condition at the time of her remote deposition. No, no, yours and a lot of people, you had that same... Um that pretty much that same condensation to me, but had the same comment that you did. Um, lots of people did to me and interesting enough. I, I really didn't pick up on it like you and many others did, um, until it was called to my attention. Um, the testimony is really three hours long and I have heard the entire testimony and I do have that tape. Um, I understand from her testimony that because they ask her, his two attorneys, defense attorneys, ask her why she didn't get up and run after he doused her with gasoline. And I remember Judy looks at him in this uh, tape, her sealed testimony. Uh, she looked at the attorneys and said, 
that her eyes and throat were burning terrible from the gasoline and that she couldn't get up and run. And then he, you know, he lit her on fire. And I think he might've went to his truck twice and got gasoline. Um, but, and she said that the last thing that she remembered was she said that she was engulfed in flames and she looked at Michael and was screaming. And again, I'm quoting her. Um, she said that she seen him, she was screaming, help me, help me to Michael. And then she said she seen the face um, or the eyes of evil. And um, at that moment, she just remembers asking God to forgive her for all of her sins and to please, please take care of her children. And that's all she remembers um, until waking up several, several months later in the burn unit. Judy's story had now been told, recorded, and most importantly, was now on file as evidence should she and her family ever need it. On June 27, 2017, that day would come when Judy Ann Malinowski passed away at the age of 33. 696 days after being burnt alive, Judy simply could not hang on any longer. She had fought valiantly in the hospital for nearly two full years and had survived much longer than anyone had anticipated. The doctors gave her mere hours to live when she first arrived, but her will to live was admirable and far exceeded any professional opinion or expectation. The local community had been made well aware of Judy's story by this point, and everyone hoped that she'd somehow make it out to the other side. But the reality here is that no human being could ever survive the extent of these injuries long term. Frankly, it's amazing that Judy made it this far. Sometime before she passed away, she told local reporters that she had been visited by an angel. She said, quote, It was amazing. She was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It's been said that Judy went peacefully. We can only hope that her loved ones somehow have found solace, knowing that wherever she is, she's no longer suffering. The autopsy would reveal the manner of death in this case and would indeed be ruled a homicide as the result of thermal injuries from gasoline burns. Given her ability to miraculously beat the odds for nearly two full years, I asked Judy's mother Bonnie if the two of them had ever talked about the natural conclusion to Judy's story here on earth, her inevitable death. It turns out they had at length, and much of the discussion about what was to come next was led by Judy. You know, in Judy's words, as she was succumbing to her injuries and knowing that she was saying goodbye to her children, uh, she, the last thing she said to her children were, Kaylin and Maddie always remember you're the color of my heart. And I quote, um, and I, I think that that's probably a good summary as sick as she was and although she was succumbing to her injuries um not only for the say the color of her heart but they were her heart i mean her heart truly um, beat for them and she fought those 700 days for those children you know one of the things that she had shared with me that um 
she kept telling me was she was, and, and, and this speaks volumes to who she was, she kept telling me she was so sorry that she she couldn't, that she wasn't able to conquer this battle, I, I believe was her words, and that, um, that for me to have to raise the children um, when I should, you know, when I've already raised two children and I have my son. And she really, really felt horrible thinking that, you know, and I kept saying, well, what, you know, I, I wouldn't have it any other way, you know, um, but she had enough compassion for me. Um, and and what, what does that speak to who she is? So, you know, she knew that she was succumbing to her injuries and she still felt that I'm leaving my responsibility onto my mom who's already paid her dues and, you know, ha has her own set of, you know, woes like we all do. Um, but then the other side of it was she really, she talked a lot about what she wanted for her children. And then she also talked about because she was succumbing to her injuries, you know, she really wanted people to know how great God was. And um, she was able to experience the divine presence of God um, and actually tell me about the quote other side of the veil as we think of heaven and they're all right there. And then the third piece of that was she fought so hard, which is why she testified to the House and to the Senate to change the law, was that she was a victim and she had resources with um, with me being a good support person or her family and kids. And her heart went out to people who did not. And, you know, she wanted to change so very badly the way things are done in domestic violence and family units um, that she was willing to fight to live. Um, testifying was really hard for her, whether it was to her own homicide so that Michael could not go free because she couldn't take any medicine. She had to be completely lucent. Um, and then testifying to the Ohio House and, um, and the General Assembly was very difficult. Again, no medicine but she wanted to leave the world a better place. But I think the other side of it was too, she truly wanted people to know how good God was and the story of grace. Um, but I'll tell another time. Um, so that, that was really what her journey was about. And um, so she did talk a lot about her coming to her injuries. And I'm the one that would be, no, didn't want to hear of it. And she actually was holding my hand, perhaps getting me ready, forcing me. And I, I the one that didn't want to hear about it. Her daughter did the final testimony 
because Judy was too sick. And um, Kaylin was only 12 at the time. And I said, Kaylin, you know, your mom could pass. And she said, no, I want to go with Senator Hughes and do what my mom wants. We have to change this law. We, we have to change the law. We just have to. And if she passes, then I'm doing what mommy wanted me to do. So I let her go with Senator Hughes, and lo and behold, she did a wonderful job. Judy's hospital deposition testimony was sealed until after her death, when Michael Slager very soon thereafter was back in court, this time facing the much more serious charge of murder. This case was not only unique for the state of Ohio, but represented a first for the U.S. justice system entirely. Never once had a video testimony been given by a victim who later died from their injuries. Judy had testified in the prosecution of her own murder, and after her death, she would tell the courts in the form of this video recording exactly what Michael Slager had done to her. There was much debate as to whether or not Judy's bedside deposition should even be allowed into evidence leading up to her untimely death and in preparation for the inevitable new hearing. While the logistics of this crucial piece of evidence were being worked out, Judy's law, an entirely separate motion was passed. Judy's mother Bonnie and her daughter Kaylin had been petitioning for Judy's law since the day of the attack. The law set a new legal precedent, adding an additional six years to any violent offender's sentence for an attack that disformed or permanently disfigured a human being as the result of the crime. Though limited in scope to only those cases involving disfigurement by flammable accelerant, this was a huge step forward for Judy's loved ones and for domestic abuse victims in the state of Ohio. But it only represents the beginning of Judy Malinowski's lasting legacy. Um, Judy's Law is a great start, um, and I promised Judy that um, Kaylee and I would do everything we could to um, get this law revised to where it should be, and um, we would carry the ball and go as far as we can with it. Judy's Law says that a judge can now add more time to a domestic violence charge if the woman is disfigured, but only with an accelerant. And um, that's just not enough because, you know, in Ohio, our laws are so antiquated if um, let's say somebody is disfigured with a knife and someone knifes their face or someone cuts their hands off or whatever it is. Um, the law doesn't cover that. So you cannot, a judge cannot add additional time if someone is so um, devious and angry to cut their other person's hand off or any kind of disfigurement. It has to be with an accelerant. Well, that's certainly not acceptable. Um, they gave us what we wanted under Judy's terms, but, you know, Judy wanted it to be, no, 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 no. You cannot give the same sentence out for someone who pushed someone against the stove. So if you push your partner against the stove and you call the police and the police come out, it's domestic violence, you go to court, that sentencing carries the same sentencing as if you disfigure that person as long as it wasn't with an accelerant. And, and that's not a balanced law, I mean, if you think about it. Um, so our goal is to change it and Ohio and then roll it out 
um, under Judy's foundation in a few of our states. And then ultimately, I I believe, and I know Judy believed this too, if, if you have nine prior felonies on domestic violence, that's probably a hate crime. And, and maybe we need to make that a national hate crime. And um, that certainly would be a, a great long-term goal. I don't know why it's not. Um, nine priors, I'd say that's a hate crime. So um, we have a lot of work to do on the legislative side. Um, and we have a lot of work to do on the nonprofit side. Um, but it, it meant a lot to her legacy. Uh, Judy first and foremost wanted to help people. And that's why we've put the nonprofit side first, at getting it up and running. And then the C4 side, um, on the legislative side has kind of been secondary somewhat. And of course that depends on, um, the legislative side, who's in office and, um, of course COVID and those kinds of things have shut some of it down. It's hard to get additional time in prisons because states say prisons are, are so overpopulated and they don't want to add additional time. And, um, as as Judy said, you know, there are people in prisons for crimes that are not hurtful to other people. Um, you know, maybe we should start disseminating what really warrants being in prison and what doesn't. Yet, in the case of Michael Slager, he was facing a much more serious sentence than just an additional six years. In fact, he was facing the death penalty if the reopening of his case did proceed forward as a jury trial. Capital punishment at the time of Slager's sentencing was indeed still legal in the state of Ohio. The hearing and sentencing for Judy Malinowski's murder would be held on July 5th, 2018, just one year and two days after her funeral. But just days before Michael Slager's hearing was set to take place, Bonnie Bowes made a public comment regarding the possibility that Michael Slager might ultimately accept a plea agreement in which case she still aggressively petitioned for Judy's hospital deposition video to be released due to the gravity of her testimony and the tremendous impact her words might have on the future legislative changes relating to domestic abuse and violence. I did ask that they unseal Judy's testimony, and we, we have fought for that, whether there's a plea or not, and the judge has agreed to do that. So one way or the other, whether at a plea or trial, the testimony will be heard. The following morning, and only one day before formal jury selection was to take place, Michael Slager's defense team announced that he would be accepting a plea agreement to avoid a trial entirely. He would plead guilty to the charges in exchange for the death penalty to be taken off the table during sentencing. Before entering his guilty plea, the judge would read Michael Slager aloud his rights, reminding him of the exact terms of his formal admission of guilt. Do you understand that by doing this, entering a plea today, you're giving up your rights of appeal? Yeah, sure. Uh, those appeals that you can only make if you were to have a trial with this. I understand the trial. During Michael Slager's formal sentencing hearing, Bonnie Bowes gave a powerful victim impact statement on behalf of the tragic murder of her daughter, Judy. My name is Bonnie Bowes. I'm Judy Melanowski's mom. I don't expect anybody to really understand what, what it's like for a child to bury their mother, what it's like for a parent to bury their daughter. 
I know, though, in my heart of hearts that Judy was a forgiving person. I know that the charges that the state asked for would not be something that my daughter would have wanted. Judy wanted him, Judy wanted Michael to not face the death penalty, and her hopes was that he would find God somewhere between now and when he meets her. And that was her hope, and that's pretty generous of her. Bonnie says Michael Slager's name aloud in the courtroom. She immediately turns her body from originally addressing the judge to now locking eyes directly with the man that murdered her daughter. Michael Slager looks up, acknowledges and locks eyes with Bonnie for a moment, but then embarrassingly shuns away, staring down at the table in avoidance. But then, for the first time, Michael Slager addresses Bonnie with eye contact, choosing for once to no longer be a coward. He looks up at Judy's mother, giving her his full attention for the remainder of her painfully heart-wrenching statement. I hug her little girls and I try to reassure her and I try to um, help others understand the domestic violence and how awful it is the day that they had the altercation at the gas station in the rage of anger. But there's nothing I can say to her little girl that's going on to high school without her mom. And her youngest is too young to be here. She doesn't understand this hearing. Domestic violence, it impacts every single person in this room. The nucleus may be myself and her kids and my family, but it's impacted the state. It's impacted Michael's family. It's impacted his mom. And we we just have to do a better job. And, And what I would say to Michael on behalf of Judy is, you know, find the right way. That's what she wanted. She didn't want you to die. She suffered 700 days. And she suffered. And they did dressing changes and 60 surgeries with no skin on 90% of her body. None. She had no skin. It was just bloody raw ligaments and muscles. She, She wasn't even breathing at the scene. Thank God to the expertise of our first responders, they were able to cry her and they couldn't even get an airway. And, and she fought. She fought so that Senator Hughes could, uh, she could testify to get better laws for domestic violence so people will think twice before they disfigure someone or hurt somebody. And that's why she suffered and she suffered and she suffered beyond what anybody could ever imagine. And I lived that every single day with her. And there's, she suffered beyond burn your hand on the stove and then magnify it on your whole entire body. And all she's seen was flames. And then lay there. And there's not enough medicine to give her or it would kill her to stop the pain. But she didn't do it in vain. Judy's killer was then given the opportunity to speak. He 
returns in the courtroom and apologizes to both the Malinowski family as well as his own before the judge renders his final sentence. Yes, I'd like to apologize to your family for the pain I've caused you. And I'd like to apologize to my family when I put you back there. Thank you. You can hear Bonnie Bowes, Judy's mother, whispering here. That's all I ever wanted. Praise God, that's all I ever wanted. As her lavalier microphone that had been clipped to the collar of her shirt was still recording, even after she had given her victim impact statement. This is only a testament to this woman's true sincerity and genuine sympathy toward another human life, even if that life was that of her daughter's killer. Before Judy passed away, she told her mother herself that she didn't want Michael Slager to receive the death penalty. As she lay dying in her hospital bed, one of her last wishes was that Michael's life be spared, shining a light on just the type of person that Judy Malinowski was all the way through to the end, a compassionate and caring soul, even toward the man who was responsible for her disfigurement, years of physical suffering, and eventually her tragic death. One can only wonder where Michael Slager's compassion was the day he held a gas canister over Judy's head, dousing her in the extremely flammable liquid, subsequently taking the time to retrieve a lighter and then setting her on fire. Michael Slager said that he was sorry, but what's truly commendable here is not his apology, but Bonnie's gracious acceptance of it. Her ability to not let hate live in her heart after Michael Slager took her Judy away from her and away from her two daughters. Her reaction and response is nothing short of exemplary. Whether or not this man truly meant those words when he turned to address Judy's family, we may never know. But before he was handed down a life sentence without the possibility of parole, the judge reminded Michael Slager of just how inexcusable his actions truly were that day, along with reminding him of the exact amount of time that he would have to think about it. Certainly endured a lot uh, and should not have had to do this uh, testimony that she gave. Certainly highlights that she had issues and challenges in her life, but those challenges certainly did not merit what occurred here. Uh, no one should have to endure what she endured Bonnie has since taken full custody of both of Judy's daughters, Kaylin and Madison, after being confronted with the reality of potentially having to give them up to foster care. But for Bonnie, the decision wasn't even a question after her and Judy discussed it at length while she was still alive. She chose to sacrifice her retirement fund to make sure the girls had a proper upbringing. Together, the family would soon set up an organization in Judy's honor, simply yet affectionately named Judy's Foundation, a support group built to help victims of domestic violence. After Judy's death, Bonnie applied for crime victims assistance aid, but she was subsequently denied. She was not approved because of Judy's medical records, which showed trace amounts of illicit drugs in her system after she was set on fire. Victims of domestic abuse are usually eligible for government aid, 
in order to help cover medical, funeral, burial, and other expenses, as well as counseling and lost wage compensation. However, in the state of Ohio, much like other states in the U.S., they have the right to deny any victim of that aid. In Judy's case, because drugs were in her system, the funds were never permitted. One can only wonder what having drugs in your system has to do with a man nearly drowning you in gasoline and setting you on fire while alive, burning you to death over the course of two excruciating years. What this meant for Bonnie was that she'd be left alone to pick up the pieces and to take on the financial burden of Judy's hospital bills as well as the girl's much-needed therapy and counseling expenses. These are things we rarely hear about when tragedies occur, but it's the harsh reality for many of the loved ones involved in several of these cases. These unfortunate aspects tend to happen behind the scenes and are often swept under the rug, fully obscured from public view. I asked Judy's mother Bonnie about the Victim Assistance Fund and her thoughts on facilitating change with regard to who is eligible. That's the part, to help other women, to help society, to help the system change things. Um, She signed the children over um, to me. Uh, During that time, I asked the state of Ohio to help with victims' assistance. I got a letter back from the state of Ohio that said, oh, they're not victims. We can't help you under the Ohio law. They not only said the kids were not a victim, but they said Judy was not a victim. Um, Obviously, they said uh, I was not a victim. Uh, My thought is, first, I think we need to change the victim's assistance law right here in Ohio. Um, Ohio says that if there are any traces of illegal substance in the person's body, you do not qualify for victim assistance, hence the children don't. Um, Ohio, so for instance, there was a case in Ohio where um, several family members were shot and a couple of the kids survived and um, they were growing marijuana on um, the properties down there and Ohio would not help them because they said they had illegal substance on the property involved. In Judy's case, they told me for multiple reasons. They said there was traces of illegal drugs in her system. Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> we, we know that. And then they said because Judy signed the children over to me and didn't put them through children's services, we did not qualify for anything for the children. Then they said, because I had the children and I was the grandmother, there's no assistance for grandparents raising children. So there's a lot of work to be done. My thought is that if the states would turn it around and start helping families and the family unit, right, um, perhaps we wouldn't have all the crime and all the problems in children's services that we have today. I know um, I I talked to um, the governor. I I think he would agree with me that um, and it's of no disrespect to anybody in the agency because it's been around a long time and it's pretty antiquated, but um, children's services is is a train wreck. And where would those two children be if I would have put them in children's services so that I could get help and what it's just it's mind-boggling, right? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we have legislation that says 
oh, you, Uncle Joe's going to take them or Grandma and Grandpa's going to take them. Yeah, we'll step up and pay for some counseling for them. They are very traumatized. Or we'll step up and pay maybe some money on the funeral bill. You know, one thing people don't realize is that when you lose a loved one, at least, you know, this was my thought. Um, of course, I didn't want Judy to be, and we talked about where she, her final resting place would be, but of course I did not want her to be buried alone. So I end up buying my plot, my son the Down syndrome plot, Judy's plot. You know, you get into lots and lots of money. It's a much bigger scope of things, right? Um, but again, this our systems are so geared towards keeping people in the system instead of helping them stay in the home that um and i think that's just a huge problem kids want to belong and i think they're far better off with aunts uncles cousins anybody but there's you you would be my thought is you would probably be very surprised at how many families don't step up and take the children um and and you know i think that counseling is important and we just we just don't do a good job of taking care of our our victims we just don't and then we wonder why the cycle doesn't break michael slager's entire defense revolved around judy's drug use perhaps to sway a jury that ultimately was never to be into believing that she was fundamentally a bad person. The reason we have chosen to acknowledge Judy's struggles with substance abuse is different. To address the struggle as a lived reality, not just Judy's, but the millions who suffer from similar problems every day. If we normalize the conversation and evoke a critical dialogue, then who knows, maybe someday we can be a small part of the spark that ultimately facilitates systemic change. In Judy's case, her dependency on substances led her to meeting and remaining with Michael Slager. This would come at a cost of several years of physical and mental abuse. He controlled her by supplying drugs to his victim. He kept Judy high, and in turn, she relinquished her free will. The day Judy Malinowski finally decided to get clean, was the very day Michael Slager decided to effectively sign her death certificate. Bonnie reflected on the extensive manipulation Michael Slager would deploy and the nearly 20 occasions that police were called out to Judy's home in the weeks and months leading up to her murder. Somewhere in the 20-something 911 calls to her home during that very, very short time, um, and then he would, and this, the manipulation when the police would come, if he, if she was there or he, they were there together in the beginning, he would say, oh, she's just high. Oh, she's, um, she has a history of drug abuse. She has, she's been on drugs for years. You know, I just can't control her. She's overdosing. You know, he certainly tried to turn that around to deflect from the abuse that he had done to um, women, you know, we, he had nine priors that we know of. And, and there was um, a stewardess prior to Judy that uh, moved out of state um, because of the abuse. And um, I know the gal before he dated before Judy, I understand. And um, let me make this disclaimer. I am by no means accusing anybody. I'm just stating fact. Um, 
the girl before him uh, OD'd and was a student at Capital University, and I understand he was dating her, and she OD'd and died. Um, the parents, uh, Bexley, rolled it as an overdose. Um, perhaps she did overdose. I don't know. Um, the parents were pretty adamant that she did not take drugs. Um, it's just a fact with the nine prior felonies. And then he, right after that, he is when he reached out to my daughter on um, Facebook. So interesting enough, I think that perhaps the addiction was for maybe his targeted or getting someone addicted um, so that he could manipulate them and perhaps the system too into his web of abuse. Bonnie also shared with us something that has never been publicly reported that occurred during Michael Slager's sentencing hearing. That Judy had personally reached out to a member of law enforcement asking for help, eerily foreshadowing her own murder should no one intervene. And then while we're on the subject, for me, one of my hardest moments during when Michael pled the day we seated the jury, one of my hardest moments was listening to Detective Cohagen testify under the court of law that Judy had called him um, multiple times and one that he knew of in particular remembered and begged him saying he that Michael was going to kill her if they didn't do something and um, that's probably one of my toughest things to hear through it all. I understand, you know, and as horrible as this particular gentleman felt, um, he felt like he they did everything they could based on the law. Cases involving codependency and drug abuse create infinitely more complex scenarios for victims of domestic violence. But if someone reached out for help, as in Judy's case, explicitly predicting her own death, we must ask the question who is ultimately at fault. Obviously, Michael Slager is the one who decided that Sunday afternoon to pour a can of gasoline over Judy Malinowski's head and set her on fire. But perhaps the blame is actually shared. Shared among those who so readily prescribed her excessively addictive narcotic pain medication without more intensively examining the source of her abdominal pain. Perhaps it is also shared among the members of law enforcement who missed the critical warning signs of manipulation, abuse, and violence amidst the cries for help from Judy herself. Perhaps it's a little bit of all of the above. Before her death, Judy Malinowski provided an anecdote of advice to other women potentially entering or involved in abusive or violent relationships. Advice that Bonnie shared with me before we ended our interview. Um, you know what? I do. I think Judy summed it up. Um, it, it the first sign of even verbal abuse, turn around and run. And that's quoting Judy. She's run and run the other way. It, it don't dismiss even the slightest thing in verbal abuse. Just stop it right there. Get out of it, run. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. One in four women on average will experience severe physical violence in their lifetime, and 
it's become an unshocking routine to hear of overdose fatalities in the United States. And yet, we urge you to be shocked. We urge you to speak up. If there's someone you know that needs help, please try your hardest to assist them in doing what Judy recommended, to help them, quote, run like hell. There's a stigma that comes along with addiction, but not one single person ever wakes up one morning and wants a path of self-destruction. There's not just one occurrence that brings someone to an unfortunate place or circumstance in life. There are several events that lead up to arriving at such a dark place. Anyone that's ever suffered with abuse in any form likely has a story of how they got to where they're at in life, and this was no different in Judy's case. We just hope that the tale she fought so hard to stay alive for, to be able to tell after nearly 700 days of suffering, can help other potential victims in the future. After all, that's what Judy Malinowski would have wanted. And that's the legacy her two daughters continue working to fulfill to this day. You know, they are doing amazing and they became um, amazing, compassionate um, advocates um, for people and for perhaps friends that are the underdogs. Um, I, I think that it's it's twofold. Um, the trauma um, certainly has left them somewhat um, not as mature as they work through their trauma. But the other side of it is, if and I know this sounds like an oxymoron, but it's made them wise beyond their years. So um, it, it's kind of a twofold. Interacting with their peers is very difficult at times, um, albeit they're both honor students. They, they both make... Um, they both have all A's, they all take honor, they both take um, honor classes. I'm blessed beyond blessed because if I had to chase homework and things that, you know, um, I might be, <laughs> it might be all bad. And um, their counselor is amazing. She's had the girls since before Judy passed. And um, I, I think that's made all the difference in the world. And, um, you know, Judy gave them two roles. They, and the first one was they had to love and serve God and to be kind. And the second one was they had to make more A's than B's. <laughs> so we just had two roles. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I can put those up there. <laughs> so um, she did have some wit to her as sick as she was. The one thing about Judy that got her through is she had an amazing sense of humor. So, so she kept us at, uh, with the smile and laughing, and I'm glad we can end it on some laughter. <laughs> Thank you.